Well, good morning, Redeemer Church. My name is John Bachan, and I serve as one of the elders here. And I also uh, work with Gulf Street Theological Seminary, which trains pastors, leaders, and ministers for the advance of the gospel in the Minasa region. Well, this past week, we had some good news uh, that comes from India. Our former pastor, Pastor Binoy, started weekly meetings in Cochin, the southern part of India, where he moved to plant a church. What a delight to see some of those pictures there, and what a joy to see that God is building up a faithful church in that part of the country. Well, speaking of India, uh, it is a country that has a long history of misplaced trust in certain people who claim to be God-men. Uh, these men dress up and claim that they are divine. And the practice is prevalent even to this day. As some have made it big. They have huge following, money, and even private jests. Some even are elected to the legislature or the parliament. One journalist blogger who studied this phenomenon narrows down the problem to the desire of masses to find quick fix solutions to the problems. Coupled with their materialistic desires and sensual desires, they go to these godmen to find solutions to their complex problems. And these people trick them and in return channel their wealth and favors. Now, Christendom has also seen its share of Godmen, a.k.a. false Christs. Apostle John, who writes this gospel, warns in his letters later to the church to be alert of such people. And yet, what we see is that Christ's church, over many centuries, has withstood the pressures from such people because they are in the habit of listening, reading, and studying the shepherd's voice found in the Bible. And as we come to hear God's word being preached, let us go to him in prayer that he might teach us. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. Give us ears to listen, minds to comprehend, hearts to receive and body willing to serve. Speak, O Lord, magnify your son, Jesus Christ, and it is in his name we ask. Amen. As we consider our text today, I have two points to make. First, resist doubting that Jesus is the Messiah. And secondly, Rejoice knowing that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, Apostle John, who is the author of this gospel, presents eternal logos, or word, who reveals the Father as he shares in Father's deity, even though he took the form of a human and came and dwelt amongst us. Or the gospel's purpose statement, which we see later in chapter 20, uh, shows the identity of who this man Jesus Christ is. 
He sets for evidence in the body of this gospel, uh, namely the signs of the Messiah, the seven, to be accurate, and then goes on to narrate his death, resurrection, and appearances to elicit faith in the mind of his readers. And those who believed in him, John says that Jesus gives eternal life, which refers to the eternal communion with him, which begins here now, but goes on forever and ever. But as we zoom into our specific passage today, what we get is a continuous account from chapter 5, where the Jewish leaders accuse him of blasphemy and they are continuing to resist him. His claim of deity was specifically opposed by them. That triggers the longest discourse in John's gospel, uh, namely from chapter 5, verse 19 to 47. But what happens there is that it brings about from Jesus' own mouth his unity and intimacy with the Father. And as we see in chapter 9, we see that the hatred of the Jewish leaders is only increasing and they are even threatening people from confessing that Jesus is Christ, uh, even threatening them to put them out of the synagogue. This then prompted Jesus to compare their bad shepherding with his good shepherding in this chapter, in chapter 10. And we hear that from chapter 10, from the beginning verses. As we look at our passage today, what we see is Jesus being pictured in the temple in Jerusalem, and there was a feast that is happening there, the Feast of Dedication, or commonly known as Hanukkah in Jewish circles. Look at verse 22 and 23. At that time of the Feast of the Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. Now, a quick word on this particular festival. The Feast of the Dedication was actually not authorized in the Hebrew Scriptures, it, and it is a relatively, uh, or relatively recent institution. In 167 BC, we see the Syrian Antiochus Epiphanes overran Jerusalem and polluted the temple, replacing the altar, altar of Yahweh and putting a pagan altar there. Many Jews revolted at this, and under the leadership of Judas Mac Maccabeus, in 164 BC, they recaptured the temple and reconsecrated it to God. And the people celebrated this rededication for eight days, and it was dedicated that uh, it was decreed that similar eight days of feast would be held every year, beginning at the 25th of Kislev, which is a lunar month in Jewish calendar. And we see at that time when Jesus was there, leaders of Jerusalem surrounded him and raised a dishonest question. Verse 24, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, for a fact that Jesus never in his discourse, especially in a Jewish context, had explicitly declared himself to be the Messiah. He had done that privately, although with 
the woman at the well because he wanted to avoid the misconception of the Messiah prevailed at that time. You see, the term Messiah or the Greek equivalent Christ had many political and military connotations attached to that. And so Jesus was always careful to avoid such overtones. But even if Jesus spoke with clarity, the Jews would not have believed in him because they were really tired that he claimed to be the Messiah, but he did not do one single thing about the Roman oppression that they were under. He did not create the welfare state that they were expecting. And they were sick of the division that he caused among their ranks, among those who believed in him and among those who rejected him. And they were really upset. When they asked this question, they were not seeking a plain answer from him. In fact, they wanted to accuse him for something that he said. They wanted him dead and they were ready to pounce on anything that came out of his mouth. mouth and it was a classical instigation mechanism to provoke him. Have you seen instigators in your life where they trick you to say something that can be later used against you? Oh, that's what is going on here. The Jewish leaders were not seeking a plain answer, but they wanted to trap him. And Jesus would not oblige. Look at verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. When Jesus said that, I did tell you, or I told you, well, what he was referring to was not an explicit statement. They would have anyway misunderstood that if he had said. But at the same time, as Jesus continued with his ministry, his words and his deeds, namely the signs, pointed to one direction, that he is the Messiah. And if we look at chapter 5, verse 33 to 46, we see that Jesus gave them five reasons to believe in this truth. First, the witness of John the Baptist. Then we see that Jesus' works, which refers to the signs that he did. Then we have God the Father testifying. Then we have the scriptures bearing witness. And then finally, Moses' words. Taken cumulatively, all of these testify that the Father has sent him. But why are they not believing in him? Look at verse 26. But you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. You see, this chapter is about the good shepherd and his sheep. But Jesus, the good shepherd, is saying that they do not believe in him because they are not his sheep. Whenever he spoke to them, they did not understand. He talked to them in parables, in similes, in metaphors. But the more he spoke, the more their blindness became evident. And in chapter 9, towards the end of that section, we start to wonder what exactly is going on. A man born blind was healed, and they not only restricted 
people from confessing that he is Christ, but they also put this man who got healed because he said that Jesus is from God. With their actions, they refused to see what he came to reveal because they do not belong to him. They are not his sheep. But you may ask, then who then is Jesus' sheep? Well, look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, those who are his sheep will listen to his voice. They hear the gospel, and they are ready to live their sinful life. They receive the forgiveness that he offers and continue to trust the shepherd Jesus Christ, and they are eager to follow him. They continue to invest time in reading and studying and listening to his words. And that is why some of you are digging deep here. You attend equipping classes, community groups, Bible studies, and even some of you are enrolled in Gulf Theological Seminary to study scriptures, listening to his words, so that your confidence in Jesus Christ will be rock solid and your ministry to people will be grounded in his words. Brothers and sisters, you believe that Jesus is the Christ and is the only savior of this world and you pay attention to his words because you belong to him. And that's the nature of all whom God the Father has chosen and given them to Christ. That which we call divine election, it is the Father who does this. Back in chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. A God the Father does the sovereign election of who comes to Jesus. I have no say in that. You have no say in that. Nobody has any say in that. It is God who chooses his people from before the foundation of this world that they become the sheep of Jesus Christ. Psalm 100 verse 3 reads thus, Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. And we are his, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Well, I know that there are many people who find it difficult in understanding this. But the divine election is not a matter to be dealt with understanding and our wisdom. But it is a matter of trust in who God is. We don't possess divine wisdom. But he has, and he is good, and we can trust him. John Calvin has a warning for those who have want and curiosity in this area of divine wisdom. In the Institutes of Christian Religion, he says this, First then, let them remember that when they inquire into predestination, they are penetrating the sacred precincts of divine wisdom. If anyone with carefree assurance breaks into this place, he will not succeed in satisfying his curiosity and he will enter into a labyrinth from which he can find no exit. Brothers and sisters, let us leave that matter to God, for he is good. But church, 
there is an implication for what you learn from this truth. As you go out and preach the gospel to people, there are many who will receive the good news with great joy. But there will be people who will not receive what you say. Despite your earnest persuasion and pleading, they will reject this truth because they are not his sheep. Oh, who is equal to such a task, asks Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance to death, to death, and to other, from fragrance from life to life. You see, some will receive the gospel and Jesus' words, and others will not. They may mock at you for saying that Jesus is the Messiah. There will be rejection and isolation, lack of privileges, and even persecution. Some may say this, oh, is this your naivety? Are you living in 21st century? Are you going to be crazy like this to believe in this? Is this even practical? Oh, well, brothers and sisters, this world in which you live will not only reject this truth, but want you to stop believing in this truth. Resist their advance. Don't get carried away by their words or their arguments or their lifestyles or success or even threats because you are his sheep and your eternal security is in his hands. Look at verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Well, eternal life, that phrase makes its first appearance in this gospel in chapter 3. Back in that chapter, there is this conversation that happens with Jesus and Nicodemus. Now, that phrase means life in the age to come, which is the resurrection life. Apostle John tells us that all who believes in Jesus as the sent Messiah from the Father will have a new birth, which itself points to the acquisition of eternal life. Oh, this is made available because Jesus was lifted up on the cross to die in our place for our sins, thereby removing the death penalty that stood against all our sins. Thus, the Son gives us eternal life by his dying love, a mission the Father has sent him to accomplish. For you have been chosen from before the foundation of the world to believe in Jesus Christ, not only to be forgiven of your sins, but also to never perish, for the good shepherd will not let anybody snatch them out of his hands. Not the thieves that we earlier find in this, in this chapter, not even the marauding wolf. Jesus keeps the assignment that the Father gives him to preserve all that has been given to him. And we have that assurance. The ultimate security of the sheep is with the good shepherd. Now, in case you want sometimes have this doubt in your heart and you need an extra word, of assurance, 
Here is it. Look at verse 29 and 30. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, isn't that a step further? Earlier, Jesus said that no man is able to snatch them out of my hand. Now he's saying that nobody will be able to snatch them out of my father's hands. Well, if someone is thinking that Jesus is too frail for such a lofty assignment to preserve the sheep, you should also recognize that it is also the father's commitment to preserve the sheep. The oneness of their will and the task is clearly brought about in that verse, in verse 30. I and the Father are one. Both Jesus and the Father are in agreement to preserve the sheep. Your eternal security is not going anywhere, brothers and sisters. Theologian and author Don Carson says this, A father is greater than all things or persons. There is no force or being sufficient to severe the relationship between the true believer and Jesus Christ. In short, as Paul would say to Colossian believers, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And there can be no greater security than that. Brothers and sisters, what a promise we have. Why should we trade this with the world and what, they, what the world is offering? Can the world offer eternal security of your soul? Can it offer eternal life? Have the Godmen of this world convinced you of anything better? Has the worldviews that competed with your beliefs offered any better assurance than this? Why would you listen to its call and to its lure? Say, to, say no to those people. Resist the doubt that there is going to be any other Messiah other than Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd and your eternal security is in his hands. My second point, as you resist the doubt, rejoice also knowing the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. You see, as you heard about the truth of Jesus as the Messiah who will eternally secure you, your heart rejoices. But you see, you see what happens to those who are not a sheep? Look at verse 31. The Jews picked up stones to stone him. Isn't that amazing? They hear a promise and lift the stones to throw at him. You see, that happens to all those who are not his sheep. They hate their Messiah. They don't belong to him. Jesus answered them, verse 32, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you going to stone me? You see, throughout this gospel, Apostle John has chosen to highlight signs that refers to Jesus' messianic claim. He himself calls his signs, Jesus himself calls his signs as the works from the Father. Now, the signs explain the significance of Jesus as the Messiah. The first 12 chapters of this book, commonly or collectively known as the book of signs, uh, portray the seven signs of this book. 
And we have seen six of them, and the seventh one is coming in the next chapter, the resurrection of Lazarus. Indeed, signs in John's gospel are not mere displays of power, but are symbol-laden events, rich in meaning for those with eyes to see. But we know from chapter 9, the Jewish leaders with their eyes wide open refused to see and have become blind. Look at their response in verse 33. The Jews answered them, It is not for the good work that we are going to stone you, but for your blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. You see, the Jews always wanted him to be saying something because they decided to do away with him anyway. If you ask them, they would say, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And they charge him for blasphemy. The charge appears to be grounded in Leviticus chapter 24, which says that anyone who blasphemes the name of the Lord must be put to death and the entire assembly must stone him. And we see that there is an escalating pattern of Jewish resistance against Jesus from chapter 5. And now in our passage, Jesus gives his response with an explicit quotation from Psalm 82, verse 6, which we earlier read in our worship. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. Well, Psalm 82 addresses the judges and rulers of Israel, those against whom God will render judgment for they defended the unjust and show partiality to the wicked. These judges should have actually ruled exactly the opposite way. But since they are called to rule, but they did not do anything. They walked about in darkness, and the ultimate judge God declares them to be guilty. Although they were given exalted title as gods in order to reflect the significance of their position, they have failed to be worthy representatives of him. But if these guys, these bad shepherds are called gods, what about the one whom the Father has sent into the world? Well, Jesus is using a lesser to the greater argument here, showing that these guys were given that title, gods. What about the one whom the Father has sent? Are you leveling the charge of blasphemy against the Son of God? And besides, are you going to set aside the scriptures? Now, it is also good for us to Briefly look at what the term son of God refers to. Well, the Greek term huios, which means son, is throughout this gospel, both used absolutely or in combination with other Christological terms applied to Jesus. 41 or 55 times the expression son is found in the gospel refers to Jesus alone. Twice Jesus is called the son of Joseph. Twice he is called the one-of-a-kind monogenes son. And then there are 18 references that refers to Jesus as a son in comparison with his father. There are also references to him as the son of man, 
which is echoed from the Old Testament book of Daniel, which you can later study with Dr. Adam Brown uh, in the spring semester. But the term son of God is applied specifically eight times in this gospel. Uh, the first one that we see that in Nathaniel, from the mouth of Nathaniel in chapter one, and the last one that we see in chapter 20. The son of God has a close connection as we hear from Nathaniel's mouth that it has got a close connection with the king of Israel term. He says, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. What we get here is that right at the outset of the gospel itself that we are dealing with Messiah predicted in the Old Testament passages, namely found in 2 Samuel 7 and Psalm 2 verse 7. And the apostle wants us to know that there exists an important truth about the Messiah whom we are dealing with, namely that Jesus is the Son of God as predicted in the Old Testament scriptures. Now he is the promised King of Israel here now with them. But he is also the unique Son of God who shares unity and intimacy with the Father. And they charge him with blasphemy. Apparently they wanted to know plainly, but the more he spoke clearly, they picked up stones to stone him. They hate him for the very truth that we rejoice in, brothers and sisters. We rejoice that Jesus is the unique Son of God whom the Father loves, whom the Father entrusts all things into his hands and is equally glorified with the Father and he does the works that the Father gave him to do, including gathering the sheep. What we have here is the Son of God whom God has promised to send. But let's look further. Verse 37 onwards, Jesus continues to talk with them. If I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Well, Jesus returns to the argument that he made first, uniting himself with both uh, uniting himself with the Father both personally and also functionally. His entire ministry and character has been grounded in the person of the Father. He tells them to examine the works that he has done and see the connection. But they refuse. Well, if you are not a believer in Christ Jesus, my non-believing friend, hear me out. The truth is clear. Unless you believe that Jesus is, I am, which refers to the Father, you will perish in your sins. At least have an honest research. Don't be hardened like these guys are. Evidence after evidence has been given and they refuse it. They were dishonest in their inquiry. They are not his sheep. And they hated him. If you are honest, pick up the Bible. Read the first four Gospels that you see. And feel free to come and talk to one of us. That you may know him. And in him have eternal life. There is an invitation to come. And know this great shepherd. In whose hands your eternal security is placed. He will not let his sheep perish. For he gave his life by dying. 
You see, we who are a sheep in a little while from now, in a symbolic way, remember that his, remember his dying love for us. And we partake in a solemn ordinance called the Lord's Supper. We eat and drink together, indicating our unity with him and our unity with one another because of his sacrifice for our sins. But how sad you know, they are still ceasing, seeking to seize him. And Jesus escaped from their hands, for his hour has not yet come. But for now, Jesus went away across Jordan. Look at verse 10, 40 to 42. In the light of rising attacks from the Jewish leaders, Jesus went back across Jordan to the east side, to the place where John had been baptizing earlier. In the early days, John the Baptist prepared Jesus' ministry, that public ministry, and that very public ministry is now drawing to a close. The authorities in Jerusalem would want to see him dead. But in this region, the witness of John the Baptist is bearing fruit. There were no miracles. There are no signs. Just witnessing of John. They heard the John the Baptist and they said, everything that he told about Jesus is true. And many believed in him there because they are his sheep. It is an indicator of where this gospel account is heading. The book of signs, which is the first 12 books of 12 chapters of this account, is going to end with the, with the last sign coming up in the next chapter. But for, from now onwards, all we have is the account that John the Apostle has written and has left us to read. Readers of the, the, this gospel no longer believe because they see the signs, but because they read the account that he has left us to read and believe. I talked earlier about India in the beginning. I can't help but think about one disciples, one disciple of Jesus Christ who has traveled, who is believed to have traveled to India. His name is Thomas, where Pastor Binoy is actually planting his church. He came to that place. For many years, Christians in that part of the land is actually known as Thomas Christians. But you see, Thomas had a problem. He could not believe unless he saw. In the last chapter, no, in chapter 20, he said, unless I believe, I won't believe. Unless I see, I won't believe. But Jesus meets him in his post-resurrection appearance and tells him to come and see for himself. And all his objection melted away. And he cried out and said, My Lord and my God. Jesus tells him, You saw and believed, but blessed are those who do not see, yet believe. In the very next verse, Apostle John says that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe in Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have eternal life. These are not displayed again. These are written that you may believe. Brothers and sisters, we are those who have read these written words. We who do not see yet believe are the sheep of the good shepherd. And we believe that Jesus is the Christ and is the Son of God. And we will continue to resist doubting that Jesus is the Messiah and rejoice knowing that Jesus is the Son of God.
Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you are a good shepherd and for your dying love towards us. Thank you that we have eternal security in your hands. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God and we confess that you are the Messiah and you are the Son of God. And all God's people said, Amen.